I invite you to stand. Our gospel reading comes from the gospel according to Matthew. Let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. And what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. You may be seated. As I mentioned before, I'm especially grateful to Bonnie and to Dawn this morning. We had Joe Moore. Um, This is one of my favorite hymns of all time, by the way, the Canticle of the Turning. I think it's the greatest hymn written in the past 100 years. And Joe Moore, several weeks ago, he was going to play guitar and sing that song. And he was practicing, and I was so grateful for him putting in the time. And then he got sick uh, <laughs> right before the service. And so, Bonnie and Dawn, you did an excellent job. I really appreciate all the work that you put in, and so suddenly. Um, yeah, if you don't get anything from the sermon today, please just take this bulletin home and read through the lyrics of that hymn one more time. It's based on the Magnificat from Mary, and it's just talking about God bringing a different type of power into the world, one that is going to turn the world around. It's a wonderful hymn. Well, good news for everybody here. Um, I've got your vocabulary word ready for the year 2023. I know that's why you came here this morning for a vocabulary word. And more accurately, it's vocabulary words. It's kind of a term uh, describing a logical fallacy. And so get out a pen if you can, to write this down. It's going to be very exciting. So your vocabulary word for 2023 is fundamental attribution error. I'll write that, write that down. I'll say it one more time. Fundamental attribution error. And I know that sounds really complicated and really boring, but if you break it down, it's a pretty simple concept. So fundamental just means central. It's important. Attribution is you pointing to the cause of something. And then error is a mistake. 
And so fundamental attribution error is mistakenly blaming something for the cause of something else. You're blaming the wrong thing for a cause. And it's a logical fallacy that we all engage in. And it looks a little bit like this. So if someone else is in trouble or in hot water, you look at that person and you think, wow, that's their fault. They have bad character. But if that same thing happens to you, you think, man, the circumstances just made it where I was in a tough position. <laughs> An example of this would be, let's say a coworker of yours shows up late to work and you think to yourself, wow, they are lazy, unorganized, they really need to get their life together. But then when you show up late to work, it's because there was a wreck on I-85 or because there was ice on your windshield that morning. Or maybe, maybe it looks like this. Maybe your sister forgot to bring the dessert to your Christmas potluck this year, and that's because she's selfish and she doesn't care about other people. But, but if you forgot your dish, that's because no one remembered to send you a reminder and your toddler stayed up crying all night and you didn't get any sleep. And that one might be from personal experience a little bit. Um, but that's what we're talking about, fundamental attribution error. We have a way of shaping the narrative in our mind so that we are always the good guy and someone else is always the bad guy. Fundamental attribution error. And what's funny is we do this all the time, we do it with everything. That this error, this logical fallacy affects how we watch movies, it affects how we interact with our friends how we engage in politics, and it also affects how we read the Bible. Because of fundamental attribution error, we so quickly jump to someone being purely evil in the Bible, and we don't see ourselves in that character in any way. And there's a book that was written about this exact topic, and I love this book. Um, it, it combines this kind of creative writing English major undergraduate degree that I got with my seminary biblical exegesis degree over here, and it's, it's by J.R. Foresteros, who's a pastor and author in Texas, and it's got a really shocking name. It's called Empathy for the Devil, Finding Ourselves in the Villains of the Bible. And J.R.'s purpose in writing this book was to acknowledge this very problem, how quickly and easily we immediately judge these villains in the Bible as evil and say, we would never do something like that. <laughs> Fundamental attribution error. When we do that, we fail to recognize the sin in our own lives and the potential for sin in our own hearts. And so what J.R. does is he picks these different villains from the Bible and he rewrites the biblical story from their perspective, trying to imagine how could they ever arrive at a place where they justify doing something so heinous and so evil. And how, how might we be tempted to do the same? And one of these chapters is about a character named King Herod. Now, you probably know a few things about King Herod. He's a big part of the Christmas story. When the Magi come to pay homage to this new king of the Jews, they stop by King Herod's place first. But there's a little bit more to King Herod's story that we need to know. King Herod had been ruling the kingdom of Judah for a long time, over 30 years. But even though he was a ruler, he was very much under the thumb of Rome. The kingdom of Judah was way on the edge of the Roman Empire, but it was part of the Roman Empire. And so the Caesar, the emperor, hold fi held final authority in that place. And so Herod was terrified of Rome because he knew that if he didn't stay in their good graces, they would come for him and violently take away his life and his kingdom. 
Now, in addition to being scared of this Roman Empire, he was also scared of the people in his own kingdom. People didn't like Herod. He had come into power violently. He was not popular. His own son had tried to turn on him and take over the kingdom at one point. And so he was very paranoid. He hired a private security force all the time. He built these big fortresses in each of the major cities in the kingdom, including Jerusalem, so that if anything happened, he could jump into a safe house really quick and try to save his own life. And so in his mind, Herod really only had two objectives, stay alive so he could be the king and keep a relative peace in the the kingdom of Judah so that it didn't get the attention of Rome. He wants Rome to see the kingdom as something that's stable and obtrusive and peaceful. He wants to have the appearance of peace. I like the way that J.R. Foresteros puts it in his book. He says, in the eyes of the Roman Empire, the worst thing that Herod could be was treasonous, and the second worst thing he could be was incompetent. As long as he wasn't one of those things, he was going to be okay. And so Herod was trying to keep this tentative peace, despite being very unpopular in the region, when suddenly there arrives some guests on his doorstep. The Magi. They say, greetings, Herod. We've come to pay homage to the new king of the Jews. Can you point us his way? (laughs) This was Herod's nightmare. He asks them more questions and he finds out that they had been traveling because they saw a star appear in the sky when Jesus was born two years ago. This, This has been going on for two years right under his nose and this is how he finds out about it from emissaries from another country. And so immediately his mind starts racing. How much do other people know about this other king of the Jews? How much does Rome know? (laughs) How does this make me look and our kingdom look? And so he tries to trick them and get more information, but you know the story. They bring the gifts to, to Jesus and then they're warned in a dream to not give any more information to Herod and return by a different route. And so Herod is in a difficult position. He knows that Rome is going to hear about this newborn king of the Jews soon. He knows that this is going to make it look like he is both treasonous and incompetent. They would say, how could you ever allow this to happen right under your nose? And so he has to act in a big way. He has to do something drastic to demonstrate to Rome that he is absolutely in control of the situation and something that would show that he is undeniably loyal to the Roman Empire and nothing else. If he didn't prove that to him, they would come in and violently take over his kingdom Potentially, they would kill hundreds of people and install a different leader who they viewed as one that could keep this peace. And so, in this twisted name of peace, Herod gives an unthinkably evil order to kill all of the boys under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem, where he knows Jesus was. The end justifies the means. Here it says, in the name of peace, an act of violence is my only option. Herod is a villain. What he does is evil. However, it would be fundamental attribution error for us to not see that we could give the same kind of grim command. Because the truth is, Herod's same potential for evil and violence exists in all of us, too. Think about how many evils 
we condone in our culture in the name of a greater good or in the name of peace. We don't bat an eye at the United States holding the largest nuclear stockpile in the world. Each bomb capable of killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and we do it in the name of peace. The United States isn't alone. Other countries do it too. It's done in the name of peace. Our country says the end justifies the means. Let's zoom in a little bit. For years, our country, and particularly the South, condoned and even defended the practice of enslaving other human beings, children of God, because of the color of their skin. Many people morally disagreed with this practice and knew that it was evil, but for the sake of the economy and in the name of keeping the peace, we were willing to abuse our neighbors so that the way of life would not be disrupted. The end justifies the means. I zoom in a little bit further and look at my own life. How many times do I buy something off of Amazon or off an online retailer not knowing how it was made or what the conditions are like on the other side, just looking at, I want the cheapest price possible for me right here, right now. The end justifies the means. Or maybe, like me, you've done something questionable in your life for some money and that that voice has come into your head and said, but think of all the good that money can do. The end will justify the means. Fundamental attribution error. My circumstances say that I am never the bad guy, but really I'm not as unlike Herod as I like to think. But Connor, you might be saying, what else are we supposed to do? I mean, we're talking about the broken world that is so complicated. The problems of the world are so large and so gray that it, it always seems like we have to pick one evil over another. Sometimes it seems like peace can only be kept if it is enforced by an iron fist. What else can we possibly do? Well, God answers that question with a person, with the person Jesus Jesus, who did not come to us leading an army to take over Rome and enforce his ideals, but as a vulnerable baby who lived in Egypt and was raised as a refugee. Jesus, who Andy Stanley reminds us, emphasizes not being a peacekeeper, but being a peacemaker, loving his neighbors, especially when they disagree with him or persecute him. Jesus, who does things in a way where his actions always meet up with his goal. <laughs> The end and the means are the same. The kingdom of heaven is coming and is now here. There are no shortcuts. There is no evil now that will be justified in the future. There is only the present, loving God and loving all God's people right in front of you right now. Jesus doesn't keep the peace. Jesus lives peace. Jesus makes peace and calls us to do the same. I know we're still technically in the season of Christmas, but I'm going to break the rules a little bit and look at Jesus as an adult for a second. When Jesus turns 30, the first thing he does is he gets baptized, and then he goes off into the wilderness, and he is tempted by Satan, the accuser. And Satan tries to get him to misuse his power in small ways to reach his goals faster. Satan says, turn these rocks into bread. You'll never want again. You won't be hungry. Isn't that part of the final vision, Jesus, that no one is hungry? 
Do this now. And then Satan says, jump from the top of the temple and the angels will catch you. Your authority will be established fully. Everyone will see it happen. You will skip so much of the difficulty. <laughs> Your influence will be unquestionable. And isn't that part of the vision, Jesus? Isn't everyone supposed to view you as the authority? In the last temptation up on the mountain, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, just bow to me once, worship me one time, and all of this will be yours. The powers of the world, Jesus. Think of all the good that you can do. But each time, Jesus turns the temptation away. The end and the means have to be the same for Jesus. Because for him, how we get there is synonymous with where we are going. That makes Jesus the true Prince of Peace. He shows us a way to live where our actions match with the goal. Where we aren't choosing between the lesser of two evils, where we are loving God and loving our neighbor right in front of us here and now. And Jesus calls us to follow him to be active agents and planters and nurturers of the peace that we long to see in the world. And that is God's peace. And that's a peace that is turning the world around. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for the holy reminder the gift of a holy reminder that Jesus gives us. Your kingdom is both with us now and is coming fully in the future, Lord. The way we live our lives now can match up with that vision. God, can empower us with your spirit in this year that we can live in a way that we are peacemakers and not just peacekeepers. Make us aware of the potential for sin in our own hearts and move us to rely on you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.